Okay, we're going to read a passage uh, from Mark chapter 10. We're uh, coming to the penultimate in our short series, Rich Man, Poor Man, Beggar Man, Thief, where Jesus encounters different types of people, and we're looking at that as we're uh, working through some of the passages in Mark's gospel. And uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at Jesus and the privileged, and we're going to be reading a story about a rich young ruler. So this is what it says. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony. Do not defraud, honour your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. If you've been uh, watching the news of the last uh, months, really, since about May, you will know that there's been a little uh, story, a subplot, really, of a bigger story. England just won the Ashes. But uh, a story in the run-up to that, uh, the Ashes, by the way, if you're not into cricket, it's all about cricket. England have beaten Australia in the cricket, um, won the series with one more to play, so done really well. But one of England's, uh, if you like, great batsmen of, uh, over the years, a, a man called Kevin Peterson, um, was dropped by England. I mean, he was a brilliant batsman, but he was a difficult character to have in a team, and Uh, The the, the selectors were debating whether they should reinstate him. There was a big furor around the country. Should Peterson play in this test series? Should he not play? Peterson obviously thought he should play. There were others that thought he shouldn't. And uh, in the run-up to the selectors making their decision that who was going to be in the the England squad for the series, um, Kevin Peterson went out and uh, batted for uh, Surrey and playing at the Oval. And in one day, he scored 326 runs in an innings. He absolutely smashed it. Everybody thought in the moment, that's it. They must pick him for the Ashes. They must pick him for England. Incredulously, they didn't pick him. They let him go. All the pundits were staggered. This story is a little like that, and I'm going to tell you why this morning. This story is repeated three times in the Gospels, and it's repeated three times, I believe, because God wants to catch our attention with what he wants to say to us this morning. He's got something he's going to say to us this morning. He's going to speak to us. I believe he's going to do a little bit of rewiring, reconnecting for some of us where those wires have got a bit loose. In Luke, we're told that this rich man, we're told that he was a ruler. In Matthew, Matthew chapter 19, we're told 
that he was young. And so most commentators tend to call, uh, uh, refer to this story as the rich young ruler. It's a difficult, it's difficult to read this story without being disturbed. It is an uncomfortable read. Surely he would be a great addition to Jesus' disciples. I mean, if someone like this turned up in our church or in any church, within weeks we will be talking about what can, where can we use him? How can, this is a really great, wouldn't it? He will make such a difference for, for the, uh, to the kingdom if, we're, if we can get him involved. That's how we would be thinking about, about him. And yet Jesus sends him away. Literally sends him packing. He's gone. It's a shocking story. Tim Keller says that if we haven't been shocked and settled and challenged by Jesus, then we probably haven't met the real Jesus. Phil Moore in his book Gagging Jesus puts it like this. If we're not careful, we can settle for a tamed and domesticated Jesus, a gagged and bound Jesus, I wouldn't say boo to a goose Jesus, a Jesus of our own making. But he isn't the real Jesus. Let's have a look at this story. The first thing I want you to see is this, that everything we have counts for nothing. Everything we have counts for nothing. This was a singularly impressive young man. He had everything going for him. He was rich, we're told. He had great wealth. He was obviously well-educated. Even though he was young, he had influence. we told he was a ruler. He was God-fearing. He understood the commandments. He approached Jesus with reverence and respect, calling him good teacher. He was very serious and, I mean, he was running to Jesus. He ran to Jesus under a, the hot sun in, the, uh, uh, in Israel. Would have been, the sun would have been born. He runs to him. He is keen. He calls him good teacher. He bows the knee before Jesus. Showing him huge respect. He was courageous coming to Jesus asking for help when all the religious leaders of the day showed such disdain towards Jesus. He was a courageous young man. He was willing to acknowledge that he needed help. He clearly had some spiritual awareness. He knew there was something missing in his life. He wanted to inherit eternal life. And he understood that it was something that only God could do for him. And yet Jesus isn't impressed at all and sends him on his way. Don't you find that shocking? That is a shocking story. In Matthew, the account in Matthew, we find a key to this story. And he The young man says to Jesus in Matthew, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? What 
good thing must I do to get eternal life? Let me tell you a story that will perhaps help unpack that a bit. In our old house, we used to, we had a loft up into the attic, but we didn't have a loft ladder. And uh, being uh, slightly tight-fisted, I came up with a better solution. Uh, It's another one of my solutions to things. And um, so the solution was to get a chair, and the back of the chair obviously stands up here, and uh, the the banister... uh, at the top of the stairs is here. And so what I worked out is if you stood with one foot on top of the banister and one foot on top of the chair, and I got a net to hold the chair. There you are, safety in mind, health and safety guys here. So I'm standing like that. I could just lift up, because I'm not very tall, I could just lift up the, 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 the lid into the attic and I could move it across and I could hold, but I couldn't pull myself up. So, because I hadn't quite built the guns up yet, you know, so, and um, so I'm I'm stuck in there. But then the next bit was to get a net to move, and I put my foot on her shoulder, (laughs) and and then put my foot on her head, and I could get in. I tell you, do you know what? I want to tell you guys, I've patented it. It's going to save you buying a loft ladder, (laughs) ruin your marriage. Now, the point is this. I had this great idea. I'd done lots of good things. I'd got things in place. I'd done everything I could. But I just couldn't quite get in. I just needed a little lift up. Just a little bit. Just, I was nearly there. I was almost there. But all I needed was just that little push to get over the line. You see, this young man knew he was on the right track. He just needed a helping hand. A little help from God and he would make it. Jesus smashes his thinking. Literally drives a lorry right through the middle of his thinking. He thinks all he needs is a little more. The gospel is not an add-on to our life. It's not like a health supplement to give us more energy. Or a turbo on the car to give it a little bit more oomph. The gospel tells us we were dead. We'd done nothing to get even close. We were dead, finished, written off. But the gospel offers us life. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, says we were dead to God, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. We did a, a wedding here a couple of weeks ago, and in Sarah's wedding and there was one of the guests was sitting at the back over there so a young lady and she was the girlfriend of I think one of the groomsmen and she'd come over from Canada especially for the wedding and Annette was talking to her and uh, she was asking her about um, uh, who she was and uh, was just finding out a little bit about her and, uh, and the girl just started sharing saying actually I've only just become a Christian in the last few years 
And Annette was really interested. She said, well, can you just tell me a little bit about what it was like before you became a Christian? It's about three years ago. She said, well, life was, she, was, she said it was fine. I just busy, lots going on. And uh, she said, then I, then I went to church. I, I just, beca- I became a Christian. I saw, the, I saw Jesus Christ for who he is and my need of him. And she said, as I look back now, I realize I was dead. I look back and my life was dead. That's what it feels like now. My life was dead. I, was, I had life, you know, I was acting out life in the body. But she said, spiritually, I was dead. Now I feel so alive. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. Let me ask you a question. Is God no more than an added extra in your life? We come to church, but we're just fitting God in in a very busy diary. What's our main focus? What's the thing that really gets us going? What's the thing that works for us? If you're young people, is it about friends? It's about friendships. Is it about what you look like? Is it about going out? Is it about relationships? If you're a student, is it about uh, getting that job? Getting your first foot on a career ladder? Finding the right person? In your 20s, is it, if you're here in your 20s, is it about just building that career, building a family? In your 30s, is your focus buying your first home? Your 40s, is it about promotion in work, a bigger home, bringing up teenage children in your 50s? Is it about helping children through university and paying for weddings? And in your 60s, Is it grandchildren and cruises? And it goes on and on and on and on. And is God just an add-on in your life, in your very busy life? You see, the sense of shock in this story is palpable. This young ruler expected to be received with open arms. Jesus' disciples expected him to be received. And he's sent off. He's let go. Jesus' assessment of him was very different to the young man's own assessment. Jesus expected him to die to his old way of life. The gospel was not an add-on. There are many people throughout history who have found this story provoking and challenging. St. Francis of Assisi was a wealthy young man. His father was a businessman. And he read this story, the gospel got hold of him, and he literally died to his old way of life. He sold a warehouse that was, uh, was part of his inheritance, and he gave the good, well, he gave the, sold the goods and gave the goods away. His father disinherited him. He was so shocked at what he'd done. And, uh, and Francis went away, became a monk, and set up an order of monks that live, give themselves to Christ, give themselves to Jesus Christ, and sell all that they have and live for him. Remarkable young man. C.T. Studd was a great English cricketer. Rich young man. And the gospel got hold of him and he died to his old way of life. And he read this story and, and it gripped him. And he literally gave away 90% of his wealth and went for the rest of his life became a missionary. Went to China for the bulk of his days. 
The gospel is not an add-on. Jesus still demands wholehearted devotion. He's not impressed with everything we're relying on. He will not be squeezed into our plans for our life. His challenge to us is still the same. Let it go, die to self, and trust me. He is as radical as ever. He demands everything but promises more than we can ever imagine and dream of. If we allow him to speak to us today, our lives will never be the same. You may have been a Christian for many years, but if you grab hold of some of the truths here, God wants to do something in you. Young people, you may never go to China. You may not be called to work for a church or anything like that, but God has plans and dreams for your life if you will give yourself to him. Listen to Paul. This is what he says in Philippians chapter 3. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost everything. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, that righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Everything will get us nowhere. Our everything will get us nowhere. The second thing is our good is never enough. I remember some years ago going to... Uh, I think it was uh, South London, probably, I think it was Croydon area. And we went to see a friends of mine, took me to, to the theatre to see uh, a bit of culture, trying to get a bit of culture in this uh, Welsh lad from the valleys. I, I, when I first went to London, I honestly thought London, I thought I would get off the train in Croydon, I honestly thought this, that I would get off the train and I would be able to ask the first person I spoke to and say, I need to get to Grove Hill, Wood Hill Road... Uh, can you tell me where it is? I'm thinking it's like, in my head, it's like, a, it's like a big town. I mean, it's like a million people. And I'm going to get off the train and going to ask someone where I go. I mean, that's what I thought it was like. So I'm really out of my depth in London. And we went, so I, culture, I, I, I don't know much about theatre and stuff like that. I've never been much, we don't do that sort of thing in Swansea. But I went to see a film, uh, 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 not a film, it was a play called The, the Rivals by Sheridan. And one of the characters in it is a, a lady called Mrs. Malaprop. And uh, one of the things is, is that she gets her words mixed up and uh, uh, she uses the wrong word, the wrong meaning. She gets it wrong. Uh, and uh, the whole play is written around how she, the mistakes she's made. And when you read this story, this man's question, Jesus seems to be picking him up on his words. He seems to be like, you've got, this, you've got something wrong here. You're making mistakes in the way you're speaking. So Jesus, he says to Jesus, what good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' answer is puzzling. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus is really saying to him, do you understand what you are saying? He is saying to him, Only God is good. And therefore, I, because I am good, 
I am God. It is a veiled reference to this young man that he is speaking to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's not speaking to just a good teacher. He is in the presence of God. He is standing before God at this moment. You see, before we go any further, you need to see that behind this uh, young man's behavior and attitudes is some wonky theology. Theology is the study of God, and it's important because our views of God affect the way we live. And throughout the ages, men and women have wrongly assumed all sorts of things. And one of the things they've assumed, for example, is that living a good life, being a good person, somehow gets you favor with God. And so when you read through the Bible, you come across that from time to time. You read the story of a guy called Job in the Old Testament. And uh, uh, and life's going swimmingly and then suddenly everything goes wrong and his friends come to him and they basically conclude, your life was going well, things have gone wrong, you must have done something wrong because it's all fallen apart. That was their thinking. Wonky theology. Wrong thinking about God. And Jesus deals with this wrong thinking. He demolishes it. He draws this young man's attention to the law and the commandments. And then he starts to list them out to him. And the the young guy's, his response is, I mean, it's just commendable. All these I have kept since I was a boy. I mean, I know that if I'd been in that moment, I, I know I couldn't with any integrity have said that. He said, all those I've kept since I was a boy. And Jesus doesn't disagree. He simply goes on to show him that his good is not good enough. He challenges him to sell all his possessions and give the resulting money to the poor. The man's face falls and he walks away sad. It's, just, it's not that he can't do it. It's just that he chooses not to do it. The early church was marked by really radical generosity. People sold property to support and help those in need. But there is nowhere else is there a reference to being a follower of Jesus that you have to give, sell everything and give it away to the poor. So why is Jesus doing it with this young man? Why is he saying to him, I want you to sell everything you have and give the money that you get from it to the poor? You see, Jesus is getting down to the root issue in this young man's life. Jesus exposes the truth. He's asking him to give away his wealth because what he's doing, he's putting the finger on the real issue in this guy's heart. The most important thing in his life. The thing that gave him identity. Everything sprang from his wealth. Right at the center of his heart, there was something in the place that only God should have been. And it was money. Rather than keeping the commandments, in this moment, Jesus says, you've not been keeping any of them. You see, the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. That's the first and greatest commandment, we're told. And yet at the center of this man's heart is wealth, his possessions. That's the thing that's most important to him. He's breaking the first and greatest command. All the others fall apart at that moment. He is undone.
done. You see, Jesus is saying to him, sell it all. Come and follow me and I'll provide for you. You'll have all that you need. Trust me, I'm the son of God. If you trust me, I'll meet your needs. You just need to let go of that stuff and you will find life and find it to the full. See, he couldn't do it. He mistakenly thought that he was fine and all he needed to do was some more good things and he'd be okay. Have we fallen into that, that trap? Are we performance driven? Are we deceived into thinking that we can earn brownie points with God? There's a real danger as Christians that we can do that. I know, I can think of someone right now, not in the church here, but deep in their very center, part of the core of their being is they want to help needy people. And it's a great thing to do. It is a good thing to do. It's a good thing to do. But the core of it is, is that they get a sense of value of being, because uh, they want to be needed themselves. It's a fragility right at the very heart. We can get caught up with serving and think serving is it's really important that Christians serve and and it beca- it, 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 we can be the same thing. It becomes about what we do. And there's a story that Jesus, well, there's an encounter that Jesus has with two ladies, and one of them called Martha is uh, is cooking dinner, and the the sister's sitting at Jesus' feet, and Martha's uh, preparing, she's serving Jesus, she's doing a really good thing. It's a good thing that she's doing. And then she starts to get irritated because her sister's not helping and nobody's recognizing all the work she's doing and she starts to get frustrated and she starts to get grumpy and she starts to moan and complain and she starts to criticize her sister to Jesus. And Jesus says, whoa, stop, stop that. You are worried about so many things. This actually was just the tip of the iceberg in her life. And Jesus says to her, only one thing is needed. And your sister chose it. You've got caught up in trying to do things and earn something. You just don't need to, it's about being. You need to learn to be my, my follower, be my disciple. It's not about what you do. You won't earn anything. If you got caught like that. Our good is never good enough. The final thing is this. Love costs everything. This guy thought he just needed a helping hand. Just needed a helping hand. Jesus looks at him intently. That's what the Greek implies. Jesus looked at him intently. It wasn't just a glance. He looked at him. And as he looked at him, It's like his eyes bore into his very heart and soul. It was uncomfortable. Paul is looking at me now and he's uncomfortable. I know he is. But it was that moment where it's sort of like this guy, he can see. He can see. Don't worry, Paul, I can't. Okay. But he can see right into my very heart. 
in the book of Revelation, it talks of an image of Jesus. It talks about Jesus and it says he has eyes of burning fire that burn straight right into our very souls. He sees us as we really are. He sees beyond our good intentions, all our good efforts. He sees what's really going on inside. Jesus sees what Tim Keller calls the monster inside. He sees the pride, the selfish ambition, the anger, the unforgiveness and the greed. And Jesus will settle for nothing less than us giving him everything. Give up everything and follow me. Whatever it is, whatever it is at the center of your being, whatever it is that's been most important to you, let me in. Let it go and let me in. When the young man walked away, Jesus' disciples were perplexed. Who then can be saved? They asked. Someone said, the only person in the whole of the New Testament who walked away sad from the presence of Christ was this man. And sad is an understatement. He was appalled. His face fell. One commentator says that the language used, it's like his face was thunderous. Thunderclouds came over. It's like a cloudy day. Suddenly the sun disappeared. This guy's face looked like a cloudy day. Jesus, you see, is taking the surgeon's knife because he wants to cut out the tumor that's destroying this guy on the inside. He wants to cut it right out and this guy won't let him do it. Is God in the center of your life? Is he completely in control or deep down is there a monster lurking there that needs to be put to death? Is there an area that's non-negotiable? Maybe it's money. Maybe it's the same issue. Maybe it's what you look like. Maybe it's about your weight. Maybe it's about getting married. Maybe it's about education. Maybe it's about a career. You know, underneath it all, it's always about us being in control. You see, we just don't want God to be in control in the center of our hearts and our lives. Simply because often we just don't trust him to do what we think is the right thing for him to do. You can see the flaw in that straight away, can't you? We don't think he's going to do what we think he ought to do for us, what we think we need. It's a bit like a a car. We want to be in the driving seat. We quite like the fact that God is in the back seat, but actually we want to stay in the back seat because we want to keep control of driving. We we don't mind a, a few helpful comments every now and again. We don't mind the atmosphere being kept chirpy and, and whatever, but when he starts to speak quite loudly from the back, we want to turn the radio up and start singing. La, 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 la. Hmm. I want to shut him out. God will not be shut out. God will not be an added extra. God will not sit in the back seat of your car while you drive. He wants to be in the driving seat. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to give him everything. And that's an uncomfortable thing. When God's in the driving seat, we have to learn to stop chirping in the passenger seat. Because we start to get, our anxiety start to show. 
When I uh, take John in the car with me, John, at 11 o'clock, John has to have coffee and a biscuit, isn't it? Some coffee and a cake, something like that. <laughs> Kit Kat, coffee and a Kit Kat. So we'll be driving in the morning and we'll be driving. I'm, I'm driving, okay? It's my car. I'm driving. You're the passenger. And as we're driving along, we're driving down the A303 and we'll go, John will go, he go, um, so um, are we going to stop somewhere along the way? And I'll go, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. About 40, 45 minutes, there's some services down on the left-hand side. Okay, great, great, great. Thanks, Steve. Really look forward to that. About 20 minutes later, you go, um, are we, yeah, yes, John, we, we're going to stop. It's about 20 minutes, 25 minutes away. Well, there's a service that's coming up. Yeah, no, no, I know, but there's one a bit further on, John. Just a little bit further on. Are you sure you... No, 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 no. Both. Sometimes we are like that with God. We get... We, we exaggerate, yeah. You think that's an exaggeration? You ought to be driving the car, John. That's no exaggeration, I can tell you. <laughs> we're like that in the car. And, and God, is, God, is, God is in control and we're chirping away. And, we're, and, and the evidence is we, we just get anxious and we're fretful. And Have you understood? Could you know what you're doing? Have you, do you know where you're going? Have you looked at the map? Are you sure? Are you sure that's the right direction, God? Are you sure? Are we... We need to let God be God. God wants to be God of your life. If he is not in the driver's seat of your life, you need to stop the car this morning, you need to get out, and you need to get in the passenger seat and let him drive. If you know that you're chirping and you're anxious and you're fretful and God wants you to learn to trust him he knows what he's doing says in Romans that his ways are beyond tracing out he knows where he's going he knows where he's taking you he knows how he's going to get there he wants you to trust him love costs everything you have to lay it all down If you want to know what the love of God's like, if you want to know the satisfaction and true fulfillment that can only come as God lives at the center of your being, it's only possible through Jesus Christ. Give him everything and follow him. He loved us and went to the cross for us. Greater love has no man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. Jesus' love for us cost him Everything. He laid it all down for you. And he asks that you trust him and give him everything. Finally, we're told that Jesus loved this young man. Yet Jesus' love didn't coerce him, didn't force him, didn't make him do anything. He says he loved him. I think he genuinely loved him and he allowed him to walk away. Allowed him to walk away. Many of us have known people who've walked away from God and from church. Some have gone away sad, some have gone away grumpy. The hardest thing to deal with, 
I think it's indifference. When people are ju- just indifferent. Annie and I have watched numerous people over the years walk away. People that we love dearly just walk away and say, oh, I don't believe that anymore. And we know that as they walk away, we know that God still loves them. Because that's what these verses say. Jesus loved him as he walked away. God loves. Doesn't stop loving when people walk away. It's not about performance. It's not about how well they've done. He still loves them. I don't know what the end of the story is. But I believe that God was still giving this young man opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. Because he loved him. The Bible talks again and again of God giving people second chances. You read the story of Samson. If ever there was a guy who didn't deserve a second chance, it was Samson. It says the word of the Lord came to Samson a second time. Comes to him again. God comes to him again when he's in prison. Does it to Jonah. Jonah wanders away. Jonah rebels, won't go away. God comes to him a second time. God comes again and again because he loves you. And some of you here this morning have known you've got heartbreak in your heart for those around you, some maybe family members, people you know, close friends, who've walked away. I want you to know this, that God loves them and hasn't given up on them yet. We simply pray for God to keep coming to them, to reveal himself to them, for their hearts to break, and them to find the reality of the gospel. We've got someone close to us we love dearly. And everything had got muddled up with religion and doing stuff and performance, and, and they've just walked away. And all I know is this, is that God still loves them. God still loves them, and I'm, my prayer is, and Annie and my prayer is that God would come to them and they would see again. They'd see beyond, after all the rubbish has been moved out of the way, all the religion, all the nonsense, all the stuff that kept them from really finding a father who loved them, that they will find a God, a reality of a God who has never changed in their attitude towards them. We come to draw to a close this morning. It'd be great to have the guys up on the, with the, the bands and we'll sing a song in a moment. But I just want to leave you a little challenge. I want us just to close our eyes in this moment, actually. We're going to sing to finish in a second. But I think this is a moment where God wants to do some business with us. I think God is, for a number of people in the business this morning, is just rewiring that plug. It's reconnecting something up for you. For a number of people. Maybe you're like those three pictures. You feel like you're that person, like a lion in a cage. You feel stuck, but actually Christ is the key. The key is Christ, it's him. Maybe you feel undervalued. God loves you just as much as the day you were born. God loves you. It's not stopped loving you. Maybe you feel you're going through a difficult time. Maybe you feel going through a bit like being refined, like silver in a furnace. God is watching. He knows just the right time.
to take you out. He's looking after you. He's got his eye on you. He's in control. You need to trust him. So we've got our eyes closed. I just want to. I just want to. I just want to pray for you. If that's if you feel that God's spoken to you this morning, maybe you're going to about to go to university and you want to say, "I want to do this well, Jesus. I want to commit to you." Maybe you battling with. Uh, a recommitment. Maybe you felt like a little bit like a Martha running around doing stuff. Maybe you've been struggling allowing God to have full control. I just, I'd love you to just stand and I just want to pray for you.